Church, you ever weary in life? It's kind of like the nature of our American existence, isn't it? We just, we prize busyness even though we complain about it. You know, it's like one of my pet peeves. When somebody, when I say, how you doing? Somebody's, I'm busy. Like, welcome to, welcome to earth. You know, I mean, it's like we just, we're busy, we're worn out. Um, and, and thankfully, there is a God who is rich in grace and he promises strength and he promises grace and he meets us in our need. And, and this morning, we're gonna look at a section of God's word where we just see this, this desperate cry for help. And it's interesting that this desperate cry for help could be connected to a particular tragedy in life, but it could just be connected to life itself. Just the reality that life is hard in a fallen world, and therefore we cry out to God with great regularity. Because you know, church, desperate people, desperate people are the ones who cry out for help. Have you ever been in an almost tragic event where you just shriek for help? Maybe, maybe a car is coming at you and you're just, you, you scream even though they don't hear you because you're, 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 it's like this cry of help or maybe, maybe you're, you're feel like you're falling over an edge and you cry out for help, right? You're, it's at that moment you're like, ah, help me! You don't even really think about it. It's just what comes out of your mouth because you're, you're desperate and in that moment of desperation you cry. We, we cry over tragedy. If you remember back in 9-11, it was just God help us. It didn't matter what political party you've stood with, God help us. We need God. I mean, it was just like, because what else do you say when tragedy of that magnitude strikes a country? You know, it's interesting that in life, we don't always realize how desperate the situation is. Have you ever seen those photos of somebody that is unaware of tragedy close to them? One of my wife's favorites in this regard is like the guy on a surfboard with a shark behind him. Ever seen those? There's like somebody surf, well she hates sharks, that's why it's her favorite. She won't go in the ocean because there's a shark somewhere in, in Africa that might get her. Um, so, right, there's, but there's this guy surfing and, and he doesn't even notice that there's a great white fin right behind him and then somebody gets that cool photo and you're just like, oh my goodness. He has no clue of, of the desperate spot he's in, but desperation's close at hand. And life is kind of like that. There's times where, where we're spared from those times or, or times where you go, wow, I didn't even know what was coming and it hit me and it hit hard. And that desperation is, was, was unforeseen, but then it hits you. And it's interesting that what we see in scripture is that in our, in our desperate states, we cry to God. But you know what we're gonna see this morning is that it's not just our circumstantial desperateness. It's a true follower of God recognizes how broken he is every moment of every day. And we cry to God. You see, what we do is we cry to God when things go bad. Right? When another tragedy strikes the world, when somebody we love has a disease, when financial hardships hit us, we're like, okay, God help us, we need you. But what we see in scripture is actually because of who God is and who we are, we live desperate lives. And, and we, in our pride, we don't like to admit that. You know, we're self-made, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps kind of culture. 
but we all know that's a sham, right? That we're broken and we look pretty. We try to look pretty anyway so that you won't notice how broken we are, right? We, we drive into our pretty little houses and close our garage doors so that nobody can actually see the mess on the inside. But we know that we're broken and we're desperate and the desperation of life is designed by God to do something, namely push us to him. And, and in our normal condition, we go to ourselves and our own wisdom. We go to worldly ideas. We go to things that cannot satisfy. The word calls them broken cisterns. You have yours and I have mine. And yet God's design is that we in our, in our desperate condition would be pushed to him. So let's read Psalm 119, 145 through 152. Psalm 119, verse 145. With my whole heart, I cry. Answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with an evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you, O Lord, or but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Father in heaven, we ask with the psalmist this morning, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. We need you. We plead with you. Do that work by your grace. And in Christ's name, amen. We see this morning the goodness of total dependence, total commitment, and the centrality of God. That's what this psalm just smacks into our face. Total dependence, total commitment, and the centrality of God. Now, I'm going to do something a little different. Um, brothers, can you throw that slide up, the next one? Um, I want to I want to show you this passage, and um, you may feel like this is a little bit like a class for for two minutes, but bear with me because it's important, okay? Because sometimes you may wonder how do you how do you get to that conclusion? Well, I said total dependence. All the yellow is total dependence. He cries to God. He calls to God. He rises before dawn. Cries for help. His, he's awake before the watches of night. Total dependence. Then he has total commitment. That's all the green. I will keep. I may observe. I hope. I meditate. Long have I known. He's totally committed to his God. And then he has the red. It's the centrality of God. And look at how much there is. Your statutes, your testimonies, your words, your promise, your steadfast love, your justice, your law, you are near, your commandments are true, your testimonies, you have founded them forever. Okay? I'm not, I'm not making this up. It's right here. And it's all over the passage. Total dependence, total commitment, and the centrality of God. I would encourage you in your own study of the scriptures, do something like this. Get highlighters and just start writing, oh, look at all these connected ideas. And then the passage just leaps off the page and you're like, wow, that's really cool. It's right there. So that's where we get our main points this morning. Total dependence, total commitment, and the centrality of God. So let's go back to point number one, total dependence. Here we see in verse 145 and 146, dependence stated. Look at verse 145 and 146. With my whole heart I cry, 
And then he says in verse 146, I cry to you or I call to you. Remember how I've been each week reminding you that Psalm 119 is a giant poem, right? And each section has a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet it starts with. So in this, we're in the, what is the Q, if you will, the Q letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And verse 145 and 146 start with the exact same word, and it's the word cry. Both of them actually have the the exact same impetus, the exact same direction. I cry with my whole heart. I cry to you. That's the, that is this dependent cry, this wholehearted cry. In five times in Psalm 119, we see the wholehearted statement. And you've probably been familiar. We've been over and over, wholehearted, wholehearted. And there's five of these statements, but honestly, there's dozens of implications of wholehearted seeking after God. Just look at verse two of Psalm 119. Right off, right off the bat, very beginning, Verse two, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with what? Their whole heart. Yeah, that's what he God's after is, is wholehearted followers. Verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. You see, the problem is, is folks, we really struggle with this wholehearted idea, don't we? We really want to be half in, half out. We really do, and you know what? The scripture, we're no different, it's all over the Bible. Because people four, three, four, five thousand years ago had the same problems we have. They wanted to love God and love the world. And so we see all through scripture, you can't do it, right? Jesus said you can't have two masters. First John said you can't love the, love the world and things of the world and love God at the same time, right? It's all over scripture, we can't do both. But we really, we really want to because we're drawn into these fleeting pleasures of sin. They look attractive, right? It's like it glitters and it looks fun and it looks enjoyable. It looks like it'll give me relief from the mess of life. And so we go after the world. And what we see in Psalm 119 is this wholehearted crying out to God. And you see, one of the things that we see here is this desperation. I think when we're desperate, we're wholehearted. I have this memory from my childhood. We used to do rock climbing and rappelling as kids. So we had this, this bag with all the ropes, harnesses, everything in the, in the car. And when we go out on trips, it was with us. So if we drove by a big rock, you know what we did? We stopped, hooked up the ropes, and we climbed and rappelled, right? So I have this vivid memory of, of being on a, on a cliff about 150 feet tall. Um, and if you ever rappel, dropping over the edge is the scariest part. Once you're over the edge, life's good. But that leaning backwards over a cliff really gets on my nerves. So I'm over, dropping over this cliff edge, and we're right on the Mississippi River on the Illinois side, and a train, a big freight train, goes by the tracks at the bottom of the cliff. So the ground starts to shake, and I'm terrified. I mean, I'm absolutely terrified. And I yelled up to my dad something about like, dad, what do I do or help me? And his response was, don't worry, Justin, we have great life insurance policy. (laughs) And I I just said, I think that was the one time in my life I said, dad, shut up. Um, because I was so terrified, right? It, it was just like, you've got to be kidding me. I, I'm desperate. I need help. What do I do? And what we see here is that when we're desperate, when we realize our condition, we just run to God. And we say, God, I need you so badly. And brothers and sisters, I really believe that's why God brings trials into our life. Because you see, we should do this every moment of every day, but we don't. 
And then life starts to hurt, and what do we do? We either run from him or we run to him. And his desire is that we would run to him. And so we see here that this wholehearted devotion of crying out to God should be the normal condition of the human life. But sadly, it's not because of our sin. And so God then kind of tightens the screws down, if you will, at times to make us hurt enough to say, okay, I'm running to God. I need him. And I'm done running after my own way. And so when life brings you low, wholehearted crying is all that you have. And so he is seeking after God with all of his being. And he gives us an illustration of it. So he states his dependence, but he illustrates it in verse 147 and 148. And I love when God's word does this. Look at these verses with me. I rise before dawn and cry for help. Skip down to 148. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night. Here we have the psalmist saying on both ends of the day, the early morning hours before the sun rises, I seek you. And then when the city watchman, in the ancient days they had a watchman who would watch the city and he would cry out if enemies came. It was their, kind of their guard tower, if you will. And he would also cry out throughout the night of the time of the evening. And he says, as the watchman is out at night, I'm awake before he's out. And I'm awake while he's out. So both ends of the day, he is seeking after God. So it's really interesting in verse 147, and 140, I think we see a few implications. One is this dependence on God is more essential than physical rest. And as I meditated on that alone this week, I was convicted. Do you know why? I love sleep. Anybody else love sleep? Anybody else just love when your alarm goes off in the morning and you just jump out of bed because you're so excited to meet the day? Because that's not how I live my life. I'm like, oh man, really? Wow, another early morning. Okay, and then if I don't choose to walk with God, if I don't choose to rise early, then I hit my snooze, and I hit my snooze, and I hit my snooze, right? And here the psalmist says, in my dependence, I rise early. It's more important that I seek after my God than I sleep. And, and I just, I say, okay, God, that's where I want to live my life. And then he follows that up with, it's not just the morning hours, it's the night hours that I stay awake, and, I, and he, what he stays awake for is also convicting, he stays awake for the purpose of I, that I may meditate on your promise. Church, I don't ever stay awake to meditate on the promises of God. Do you? What I do is when my children wake me up at night, I try to be spiritual and think about God or maybe pray. But here we see an intentional commitment. I'm not going to bed. I could go to bed, but I'm not. Not right now anyway, because I'm going to set aside time to meditate on God. And as I stood on this, it was like, well, that's just profoundly simple. It's quiet. Nobody else is awake. It can be me alone with my God. I can meditate on the promises of my God. And then my mind just immediately jumped to 1 Timothy 4.7, because we see a statement in, in, in Paul's instructions to Timothy in 1 Timothy, where Paul is burdened for this young Christian, this young pastor, and he gives him an instruction on how to walk with God. And listen to what he says, 1 Timothy 4, 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, but rather train or discipline yourself for godliness. And I thought, man, is that not discipline? Rise early. Stay up late for the express purpose of spending time with 
my God. Because you see, when, when you're thoroughly convinced something is necessary for life, you'll be inconvenienced for it. You will be. You and I do that every day with other things. We're inconvenienced for what we think matters. So some of you don't buy your groceries at the nearest store because you think someplace else is going to help you live longer. So you drive to the other side of town to get your groceries because you're convinced of something. Are you, are you tracking? So when we believe something to be true, it changes our behavior even when it's inconvenient. Even if, even if you have a belief that ends up costing you more money. It it's what you believe, and so you'll sacrifice money for that belief. Here we see the psalmist in his desperation saying, the only help that I can receive that will truly be what I need is God. And so I will sacrifice the very essentials of life for the sake of seeking after my God. And and what we see here in, in, in Psalm 119, these first four verses about dependence, is it's not just lip service, it's his life. You see that in verse 145 and 146, he cries out to God, but he's, it's not just a, a uh, I'm gonna cry out to God when it's easy and convenient, it's a, I'm gonna cry out to God before the sun comes up. I'm gonna cry out to God when everybody else is asleep. It is a life-altering, life-consuming, life-dominating dependence upon God. And church, I would hope that we would grow into maturity to realize we are always so dependent upon God. There's never a moment where we are independent. There's never a moment where you have all the answers. There's never a moment when, when you on your own will make it all right. And we know this from life, don't we? We just look and go, oh, yeah, tragic, tragic, painful, horrific memory, things I wish I could go back and do different. And it's all connected to when I went my own way, when I thought I knew better than God, when I didn't depend on him. And so we're not aware of our sinfulness. Because you know human nature, we tend to think better of ourselves, don't we? I mean, we think less of God and higher of ourselves. So we think things like, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I'm better than average. I'm a pretty nice guy. I'm not nearly as much of a jerk as him. I mean, I don't do all these other bad things. And then as Christians, that, that self-righteousness can just compound because, oh, I go to church, I read my Bible, I and we have all these things we do, and we forget that we are sinners who are in desperate need of God. The message of the cross is not get saved and then live your life on your own. It's you desperately need Jesus all the time to save you and to sanctify you every day of your life. And so the psalmist is totally dependent on the Lord. And he hasn't even talked about tragedy yet. He's just saying, I am dependent upon my God. There is goodness to dependence. But look at where he goes on. He gets to total commitment. So these verses of dependence are laced, if you will, with commitment. Look at verse 145. I will keep your statutes. Verse 146, that I may observe your testimonies. Verse 147, I hope in your words. Verse 148, that I may meditate on your promise. So he is ascribing, to, he, is, he is saying, Here's, I'm dependent, God I need you, and in that same thought process, I am committed to following you. And again, we just, we've been struck with this over and over. He cries out to God, but look at what he does not say. He does not say in verse 145 and 146, God help me because I really want the pain to go away. 
God help me because it would be way more convenient to not have this trial. That's, that's how I pray. God, this is painful, take it away. I don't like pain, please get rid of it. But what he says is, I cry to you, I want to keep your statutes. I cry to you that I may observe, that I may keep and follow and obey you. You see, real dependence is always, expect, always expressed through acts of obedience, obedient worship. Real dependence is always expressed through acts of obedient worship. So he's not just giving lip service of, okay, God, help me out here. I'm in a tough spot. God, I am committed to you. I'm going to follow you no matter what. And God, if, if you answer me, if you save me, if you hear me, I'll follow you all the more. But I'm going to follow you no matter what. Because my commitment, my allegiance is with my God. So he has intentional actions of keeping and observing the ways of his God. It's so interesting, brothers and sisters, that in Psalm 119, knowing God is never mere intellectualism. It's not. And what we often do is we, we reduce the Christian faith to mere propositions. Yeah, I'm right and you're wrong. And we, we, because of our pride, don't we love to win arguments? We love to prove that we're right. And so now we're at a church that, that we're committed to the scriptures by God's grace. And, and we sit under long sermons. Sometimes you wish they were less long. And we're like, yeah, we love the Bible. But is it just to be right? Because Psalm 119 is about, is about the implications of walking with God. That if you know him, you will be radically transformed. And I find that so often it's not, it's not just getting information through my head. It's living out what I know to be true. Right? So is the Christian faith an, an intellectual faith? Absolutely. God gave us minds to think and to reason. But if all we do is we just reason and think and then we aren't transformed, somewhere there's a disconnect and it's not with God, it's with us. Because the word of God, like James says, is, is what? It's a mirror that exposes your filth. And if you can go to the scriptures and not see your filth, you're, you're abusing the scriptures. Just like this morning, I hope you looked in a mirror before you came. If you didn't, we would know. Right? I mean, some of you have less hair than others, but if you have enough hair, it's going to be going some direction and you got lines all over your face, and your beard's not trimmed, and you stink, and it's like a mirror confronts you with that. And I don't know about you, but there are days where I'm like, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> God's word is supposed to do that. You look into it, and you go, you don't go, oh, I look pretty good today. Yeah. No. You look at the word of God, and you go, oh, God. Oh, God, I'm dependent on you. I'm broken. I don't have all the answers. I'm a mess. I need you. Church, that's the point of the scriptures, that we would not just gain intellectual information, but be transformed. And so here he cries to God because he wants to obey him. He wants to follow him. So this begs the question, do you know God's word, God's word well enough to keep it? So I had a person recently say to me, this is almost a direct quote. I, I realized that I could obey God and forgive this person, but still not love them. Uh, okay. Um, that's a problem. 
because it's not found in this book. It's actually directly against this book. But isn't that good human logic? I mean, that's like commendable. Yeah, you know what? Take the high ground, forgive them, and hate their guts. But at least you were the the good one who did the forgiving, even though you can't stand them. That's not in the scriptures. But that's honestly how often we think, because we don't know the scriptures. So we take a little bit of the worldly wisdom and a little bit of Bible that we know, and we throw them together, and we say, voila, this must be what God wants me to do. And church, it's not. And so if we're going to be Christians who truly cry out to God and are committed to him, it requires that we know the word of God. We must be people that are in this book. And so when when something happens in life, you're not just shooting from the hip going, I hope this is in the scripture. No, no, here's what God's word says. And if you don't know the word of God, you're going to be going through life living for God with a blindfold over your eyes, clueless stumbling into everything, wondering what the problem is. And the problem is God's word gives life, right? God's word guards you from sin. But if this book is closed, you're in big trouble. And church, far too often, um, churches are full of people who aren't in this book, right? We don't rise early. We don't stay up late. We're not in this book. And so when it comes to actually keeping and observing the commandments of God, we're clueless. So it's intentional actions, but interesting, he goes on in verse 147 and 148, it's intentional thought, because as we've stated over and over in Psalm 119, your, your thoughts and actions are never separated, right? I mean, I shared with you before that my mother's favorite verse to quote to me as a child was, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. Why would she say that? Why would she say it? Because my mouth, my mouth spewed something filthy, towards her, towards somebody else, towards one of my brothers. And so she would throw that verse at me. And I would say, oh, mom, I I don't mean that. (laughs) Yes, you do. She wouldn't let me out, right? She would say, well, whatever just came out of your mouth, that's actually what's exactly in your heart. It wasn't a joke. It wasn't an accident. It's what is in your heart. And isn't that ugly? Because we don't like to acknowledge that what comes out of our mouth is actually what's in our heart. And that's what the word of God says. So we can't separate thoughts and actions because our heart dictates our actions. So here the psalmist has intentional thinking. He says in verse 147, I hope in your words. Interesting that this Hebrew word for hoping is translated two ways consistently, hoping and waiting. And I find it interesting because if you do a word search on hope and wait, you'll see that they really are interchangeable so often in the Old Testament. They would wait with this expectation that God will do something. See, this isn't a, this isn't a hope like, um, I hope one day to have a 1967 Shelby Mustang. I can hope all day long, but it's never going to happen. Uh, that's, that's a fictitious hope, Right? This is a, a confident hope that God will do what his word says he will do. So I hope in God. Psalm 45, I'm sorry, Psalm 42, verse 5 and verse 11 are just great passages on hope. Psalm 42, verse 5 and 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Or maybe you could say this, wait for God. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And he repeats the exact same thing in verse 11. Why are you cast down? Hope in God. See, the point there is that we hope in a lot of other things. Don't we? I mean, it's not an election season, so I can talk about elections, okay? 
I'm baffled at how many Christians hope in elections. Why? You can't hope in an election. So your particular sinner gets put in office versus somebody else's particular sinner. You can't hope in that. There's no hope in it. There's nowhere in scriptures we see hope in politics because they're failed human beings just like us. But we do it, don't we? We put our hope in a political this or a political that. We put our hope in the stock market. We put our hope in a career promotion or just a career in general. We put our hope in so many things. And you're just, no, you'll be hopeless. If you put your hope in those things, good luck. You'll be a mess. Hope in God. Wait on God. So here the psalmist, I rise early. I rise before dawn. And what does he do in that rising before dawn? He's hoping in his God. He is resting confidently in his God. And then in verse 148, here we see how he is um, he's awake before the watches of the night. It says that I may meditate on your promise. So this, this inconvenient time slot of midnight meditation for the single purpose of I want to think deeply and often about my God. That's all meditation is, right? We've over and over, it's not some Eastern mystic thing. All right, it's just thinking deeply and often about God. But it's interesting what he meditates on. How does verse 148 finish? I'm gonna meditate on your promise, the promises of God. So this begs another question. Do you know the promises of God well enough to meditate on them? Sometimes I think we, we think, oh yeah, I need to meditate, I need to think on God, I need to meditate on God. And there's a blank slate in your head because you don't know the promises of God. You don't know the God that you're supposed to think upon. I mean, I just, I just want to rehearse a few promises from, from the book of Psalms. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Go ahead and flip through these with me. Since we're in the same book, Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2. You may know how it begins. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Here's the promise of blessing to those who walk with God. There's a promise that you can meditate on and say, God, I want to I bathe my soul in the promises of the blessedness that come with those who walk with God. Flip over to Psalm 3, just a page over maybe. Psalm 3, 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. The promise of protection and deliverance. God, you're my shield. You're my protector. Do you, do you know that promise? So you can meditate on the goodness of his promises when you're just saying, I don't, I feel helpless. I feel hopeless. I feel exposed right now. Flip over to Psalm 23, verses one to three. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The promise of a good shepherd. Do you know that promise? That you have a good father, a good shepherd who has promised to care for you as you walk with him and he's gonna lead you beside still waters, not a raging river that will destroy you and sweep you away. That he's gonna take you to, to a pasture where you can be fed and nurtured, that he restores your weary soul. Do you know these promises of scripture? How about Psalm 51? Psalm 51, verse one, I have mercy on me, O God. 
According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Do you know the promises of mercy and forgiveness to all who repent? Can you bathe in that promise and just soak in it and say, oh God, I'm not just gonna let this be a two second thought, but I'm gonna park here for minutes or hours and just say, oh Lord, when I look at the baggage of my life and then I turn to your mercy and your grace and I see all that you've forgiven me of, all that you've displayed mercy on and you just marvel and you, you meditate on the promises of God and forgiveness. Or maybe just flip over to, to the next book, Proverbs 3. Just one more example for us. Proverbs 3, you know, you feel aimless in life. You wonder, does God really care about the direction of my life? Does he have a plan for my life? Trust in the Lord, verse five, with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. Can you, can you just meditate on that and say, okay, God, I don't know what next week holds. I don't know what next month holds, next year holds. I don't know my career path for life. I don't know, the list goes on and on, right? And we go, I can, I can just meditate on the promises of God. You know what God wants for you to do? He wants you to trust in the Lord with all your heart. He wants you to not lean on your own understanding. He wants you to acknowledge him in everything you do. That's what you should worry about. Not your plans for next year. Not your plans for the next 10 years, but just walk with God. And as you do that, you meditate on his promise and you say, you'll make straight my path. You'll direct my steps because you've promised to do it. And church, we just hit five promises and we didn't even get to the New Testament, right? I mean, we didn't even get to gospel promises like that are all over the New Testament. We didn't get to Ephesians chapter one of the blessings that you already have in Christ. I mean, there are just so many. But again, do we even know them? Because we must know them, church. We must be people that know the promises of God so that we can, so we can say, oh, I meditate on the promises of God because they're on the tip of my tongue. And so we see this psalmist in an absolute devotion to God, a total commitment to God. Well, we need, to, we need to go on total dependence, total commitment, but look at the centrality of God. God is all over this section. In his word, in his works, in his character, it's all over the person and work of God. So let's just, just walk through this and find the, the goodness of the centrality of God. You see, when I, what I mean centrality of God is God is the center and he's always the center. God is the center of his own being, and he should be the center of our existence, right? God exists for the glory of God, and you exist for the glory of God. God does not exist to make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. He exists for his own glory. He created you that you might glorify him, and that is when we actually know the joy of living is when we exist for the glory of God. When you exist for the glory of self, your life and my life are pathetic examples, of life in general. One of my friends described it this way, there is a God in heaven in Isaiah chapter six who sits on a, a glorious throne. A, a throne so great that angels are created for the express, express purpose of circling it and worshiping him. And then we have this tiny little pathetic throne in our own hearts. And we bow down to that one. When the glory of God is being screamed throughout the universe and we think our own little pathetic candle of glory somehow matters. 
It's like he is, it is all about him. It's always been all about him. And we must get that through our thick heads and say, okay, God, you are central. It's all about you. So just look at the psalmist and just God's word. He, the word of God is central to the psalmist and he, it's always connected to him, to, to God. So we see in verse, just walk with me through these eight verses. Your statutes, those unmovable statements, commitments, pillars, if you will, the character of God. Your statutes, your testimonies in verse 146, those things that bear witness to God, your testimonies, your words, the very words of God that he speaks out, they're yours, they're God's. Your promise, the promises that God makes to his people, your promise. Verse 149, your steadfast love. This is the covenant faithfulness, the covenant mercy of God to wretched people like us. Your steadfast love. Verse 149, your judgments or your justice, the the declarations of God that are always true and always right with no flaw in them. Your law, in verse 150, even when the wicked run from it, it's still yours. Verse 151, you are near your commandments, your instructions for life. They belong to you. And then verse 147, your testimonies, you founded them forever. I mean, what is that? 10, 11, 12 pronouns saying, it's you, it's you, it's you, it's you, it's you, it's you. What's the point? It's him. It's God. It's him who we need. And the psalmist, in his crying, he doesn't go to a self-help pity party. He goes to his God. And he says, you're the one I need. And everything you do and everything you've produced in your word, I need it. In my desperation, I desperately need it. But what he says at the end of the section about the word of God is marvelous, and we must look at it. Here in verse 151, the end of 151 and 152, let me read it for you. And all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies, from your testimonies that you have founded them, them as the testimonies, you have founded them forever. Here we see the self-authenticating word of God. I want to talk to you about this briefly this morning, because when we say that God's word is self-authenticating, what does any critic of Christianity, the scriptures immediately say? What do they say? It's unjustifiable, circular reasoning, and all these accusations start flying. Oh, you believe in a self-authenticating book, you bunch of country bumpkins. How foolish can you be? Let's talk about this for a minute. See, the word of God, it is self-authenticating. So we need to look at that this morning. You know that 258 times in the scriptures it says the word of the Lord. 258 times. So either God's a liar or this book is true. Because it says it's the word of the Lord. And then we have 52 times it says God says, and then it goes on to say something. 80 times it says it is written a reference to this book about this book. So we're talking hundreds of times this book is saying this is the revelation of God from God. And then you get to Jesus who over two dozen times states that it is written and references the scriptures. A third of what Jesus says is explaining, alluding to, or quoting the Old Testament scriptures. So either Jesus is a liar or Jesus is totally confused, or he's right. 
I'm going to go with he's right. Right, because he is God, and he believed that this book is true. And there are liberal theologians today who say that Jesus was just accommodating his culture and quoted the Bible. Well, that means Jesus is a liar. If he just accommodated culture and quoted the scripture, then he's a false prophet. All right, but he, he wasn't. He quoted this book because he, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was the divine tool of God to write this book. So it was his inspiration that penned these pages, and then he quotes it and says, it's the word, it's the written revelation of God. And then we just need to look at a, a verse here, 2 Peter 1. Go over, me, go over with me to 2 Peter 1, one of my favorite texts in the scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 19. I've referenced this before and I will reference it many times again. Verse 18, Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice, the voice of the transfiguration when the Father spoke to the Son. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain and we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is God's revelation of himself. And brothers and sisters, if, if we don't believe that, you will train wreck your faith. If you pick and choose the parts of this book you like to believe, you will train wreck your faith. Is this scripture self-authenticating? Absolutely. Is it also experientially true? Absolutely. Are there evidences that we could study ad infinitum to prove the veracity of this book? Absolutely. At the end of the day, why do we believe that this is the word of God? Because God said so. And if you have any other prop that's holding up that truth in your heart, you need to repent of that and say, I believe it because God says it. That is alone enough. And then, then you dive into the scriptures and even like Pastor Ernie brought out several weeks ago, the truthfulness shows up everywhere in life because the God who wrote this book is the God who created this world and so it just makes sense. Where it's like, oh, I see that. I see that now what God's talking about. That makes sense. That fits all over, because the word of God is self-authenticating. It's very interesting, though, that this is actually how the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter um, 11, operated. He believed by faith in the scriptures. Let me just read this for you. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Now listen to this. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. How did the author of Hebrews know the universe was created by the word of God? By faith in what? What book of the Bible did he have? He had Genesis, so he knew from Genesis chapter one by faith that God made everything. He didn't need an evidence. He didn't need science to prove it. He just said, by faith, we believe this because God wrote it. And we are the exact, or we should be the exact same today. God, it's yours. You wrote it. Who am I to question the maker? Who am I to reason with the almighty? God, it's your word, and I'm going to submit to it. And so it's just 
fascinating to me that before the days of textual criticism and German liberalism and all and the age of enlightenment and all the things that have come attacking the faith, we just have a statement, your commandments are true. I've known, from your, I've known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. And he takes that to the bank every time. It's from God. And I believe it because it's from God. There was an old heretical bumper sticker that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Who cares if you believe it? God, God said it, it settles it. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Your opinion about what God says matters nothing. What God said is true. And your job and my job is to submit to it. And when you run your own way, when I run my own way, we reap the whirlwind of consequence. Of going our own way thinking we know better than God. But here he just says, your word, it's true, and you have founded it from forever. So this word of God, God, the centrality of God in this text actually brings us to the sufficiency and centrality of the word of God. And the two can never be separated. You can't say that you believe in the God of the Bible and yet discredit the Bible. You must hold to both. So the word of God is central to his thinking, but so is the character of God. Look at a few statements just quickly. They're, they're kind of just, they're right here, like nuggets of truth. He says, with my whole heart I cry, answer me. And then in verse 46, save me. And verse 49, hear me. All of these are imperative commands, which you might think, well, that's disrespectful. The psalmist is commanding God. No, actually, he is claiming the promises of God. And so he says in this commanding, imperative voice, God, hear me. God, save me. Why? Because I believe the author of this text knew the truth of like Hebrews chapter 4 that even though he was under a different epoch of time, he had access to the throne of grace. He could run to God and find mercy and help in his time of need, and so he ran to him constantly, and he said, answer me, hear me, save me, because it's the character of God. So it wasn't enough just to cry out to God, it was a desperate need to be heard by God. And what is the character of God through which he goes? Verse 149, hear my voice, According to what? Your steadfast love. This is a word that theologians debate over and over and write great tomes about because it's all over the Old Testament and it's the faithfulness of God, the mercy of God, the covenant love of God for his people. And we see it show up, especially in the context of God's people are rebellious and he's still faithful. He is full of mercy, even though we're not. And so the psalmist here says, hear my Prayer, according, according to my good behavior, according to my diligent seeking after you, according to my, no, no, according to your character, hear me. You see, folks, your, your performance will never be good enough to merit his steadfast love. Your performance will never be good enough to earn his grace. Your performance is never good enough to earn an audience with God. You know, this last week, some of you stayed up late to watch a wedding that happened on the other side of the world. It's a pretty cool event. I'm fascinated by history, so I didn't watch it because I like sleep more than I like that. Um, but I did check the highlights out. It's pretty intriguing. The history fascinates me. The pageantry fascinates me because of the history. 
And you know, if, if one of you had a highly successful life, according to those definitions, you could maybe get invited to a royal wedding. Possible. Highly unlikely. But possible. It is entirely unlikely that you will ever earn an audience with God based on your performance. You cannot ever get there. You can't do enough good for God to hear you based on your merits. And so the psalmist, as he is diligently, wholeheartedly seeking God, he says, God, according to you, your character, would you hear me? Because I need you to accept me based on your character, not my works. And praise be to God, that God who heard the psalmist hears us for the same reason. That we go and we say, oh God, I'm striving to live for you. God, I long to know you, but God, I, I need your grace and your mercy because I can't do it on my own. And in light of God's grace and mercy, we're gonna finish with verse 150. We see the nearness of God. The nearness of God. In verse 150, it's really fascinating. He, he, he says, they draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. This is... Um, this is like the, uh, the, the, the quiz in school, which answer doesn't fit. This is the verse that doesn't fit. It's kind of a random pop out of the middle of the text. But it's actually, it's really, really important for us to, to wrestle with it a little bit. You see, he's, he's talking about his dependence, his seeking after God and the character of God. And then he just says, there are those who persecute me. They make me suffer with malicious intent, with evil purpose, and they're far from God. So here we have a contrast. I'm walking towards God. These people are walking away from God. These people that are walking away from God, they hate me for the express purpose that I'm walking towards God. And so he says, I'm walking towards you, but there are those on this earth that aren't, and they hate me. Charles Spurgeon had a kind of a funny, quippy, quippy quote. He said um, something to the effect of, if the enemies of God are your enemies, you're probably doing something right. You see, our problem is we want to be accepted by everybody. But actually, if we're walking with God, those who despise him, they're not going to like you. Oh, they may, they may be cordial to your face, but behind your back, at the water cooler, they're going to they're chew you up and down because your character condemns them. If you're living for Jesus and you're, just, you're not going to hang out and go to their parties and do their thing, maybe it's just that you don't cuss like the rest of them and they're going to hate you for it, right? Simply because you walk with Jesus. And here he says, there are those, they're far from your law. They, they go after me to malign me, to abuse me. And we need to say, that's okay with me because I'm walking with God. Now, folks, don't mishear me. Peter addresses this. Don't use your Christian truth to beat people and then say you're suffering for righteousness. You're suffering because you're a jerk. <laughs> he says, live for God. Radically live for God. Be a person full of grace and truth, but you're committed to side with God no matter what, and you live in a world that doesn't, and so there are people who will despise you. And we as Americans have a hard time with that because we think we're a Christian nation and everybody should love us because we love Jesus. Get over it. That's a farce. One of the best things for the American church will be when we suffer for Jesus. And you're like, oh! Church history has proved it dozens of times over. 
And I, I mean that. Church history has shown over and over that when Christianity becomes unpopular, the church thrives. Because we can't play games anymore, we have to walk with God. And so we're seeing that in our culture and we're feeling the squeeze of, I'm not popular because I agree with God. It's okay. I'm accepted by God. So if you don't accept me, I'm gonna love you, but I'm okay with that because I'm accepted by God. But what's actually beautiful here is the very next statement. He says, okay, they come after me, and he says, they are far from your law. What's the very next statement? But you are near. So I'm in a world, they're far from your law. They draw near to me. Oh, but God, you're near to me. You are a precious comfort to me in times of sorrow because you are near. I mean, just Psalm 145, 18. Listen to these words. Let me flip over there quickly. Psalm 145, 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. So you want God to be near to you? Call on him. Do it in his truth according to his way. He'll draw near to you. Flip back over to Deuteronomy 4, verse 7. Deuteronomy 4, 7, just in the first few books of your Bible. Deuteronomy 4, verse 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him, we're a chosen people, a, a holy nation, right? We're the people of God. And, he, and here, the promises of Deuteronomy 4, 7 is true for us today. What nation has a God so near to them? When you call upon me, I'm right there. I am near to you. But remember, folks, the context, total dependence, total commitment. You see, what often happens is, is we get desperate while we're running from God. And in our running, we cry out to God, and then we say, ah, God left me hanging. No, he didn't. You ran from him. It wasn't his fault. It was yours. You ran from that God. And then in your desperation, you wanted him to come in and just clean up your mess. That's not repentance. He says here, you're near to those who call on you. That's, that's calling on you in the context of Psalm 119, 145, of this desperate running to God, crying out to him and saying, God, I'm done running. I'm done going my own way. And in that moment, the nearness of God is your good. And you now, you can say, oh, the world can press in on me. They're far from your law, but you're near. And so the psalmist, in the centrality of God, he rehearses the word, the character, and then the nearness of God to his people. And I started off this morning saying, we are, we are supposed to be dependent. We're not because of our pride. And then God humbles us to make us dependent. But what God really wants is that every moment of every day, regarding of how bleak life looks or how successful life looks, that you literally say, God, I need you. I'm in much of need of you right now when life is good as I am over here when life is terrible. I'm in desperate need of God. And as we find him to be the one we run to continually, then guess what we know on a regular basis? The nearness of God. The nearness of God is, is just that 
constant friend, if you will. And you know, I'm sure you know people like this, but there are some people in my life that I just, I look and I say, you know the nearness of God. I can tell by how you live. You've walked with him. You've depended on him for decade after decade. And God is near to you because you've drawn near to him for, a, for, for years and years and years. Folks, if we want to know the, the goodness of the nearness of God, then I believe we need to be people that we are totally dependent and totally committed. And we see God as the splazing center of the universe and we run to him. And we run and we run and we run and we never stop running. And in that moment, you know, oh God, you're near to me. You are precious and you are near. Well, let's pray. Let's ask God to actually help us live this out this morning. Father, I thank you for your word once again. I thank you that you are near to all who call. Oh, Deuteronomy 4, 7. What nation among all the nations of the earth has a God so near to us like Yahweh, like the Lord our God? And Father, we long for that this morning as a church. And we, we know we have that positionally in Christ if we're, if we're born again. But what we need is we need to walk with you in such dependent desperateness with a continual just running to God that we would know you are near. You are near to your children. So God, may we know the nearness of God this week. May we know that you are faithful to us as we fight to run to you by your grace. And in Christ's name, amen.